Hope you all doing well. My name is John Chambers, or a lot of people call me Fudd, like Elmer Fudd. I'm one of the pastors here. Haven't preached here in, it seems like, a month. So uh, good to be back. We are in the book of Acts. We are officially done with the book of Haggai. Um, not done with as in like we don't love the book of Haggai, <laughs> um, but we have preached through it. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18. Um, many of you uh, haven't been with us for um, too long. Some of you are new and this is the 45th, I'm pretty sure, 45th sermon in the book of Acts. So that's a lot, right? And so every once in a while, when we did the book of Matthew, I think that was 90 sermons or something like that. Um, and we thought it would be wise and prudent as we went through the book of Matthew about every seven chapters to kind of take a commercial break and go to a different book. And so in a similar way, we're going to do the same thing with the book of Acts. So what we're going to do is we're looking at the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to use a little bit of 18a today. And we're seeing Paul plant the gospel in the city of Corinth. It's the first time that he had been there. And so we thought it would be quite interesting um, after we've this week seen Paul plant the gospel in the city of Corinth to next week start the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to, over the summer, uh, be going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, which we'll know a little bit today, they're an absolute mess. I mean, just an absolute mess. Not that we're an absolute mess, but they're an absolute mess. And so uh, the goal, and this is just the goal, is since it's 16 chapters for about 16 weeks, we'll try to do a chapter a week, look at the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, I've never been able to do that. Uh, so we'll see if that happens. Uh, but that's, that's kind of the summer idea over this coming summer. We'll look at the book of 1 Corinthians together. So this is um, an opportunity for us to see how the gospel is planted in the city of Corinth. And then from that, as we understand some of the inner workings of how, what Paul did there, we'll go to the, to the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. And this, that's actually in a correspondence uh, where Paul and, and, and they had written back and forth to each other. And we'll get to see some of the actual issues after Paul had planted the, city, uh, the church in the city of Corinth, uh, planted the church. What were some of the issues after that happened? What are some of the things that they were dealing with, questions they had, uh, and how Paul answered? There's... 1 Corinthians is actually uh, the second letter from Paul to them. And, and 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter from them. We don't have the first and third. So anyway, that's, that's actually stuff we'll talk about next week. So anyway, we are in the book of Acts today. Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 1. So we'll do something. We do this every once in a while, but I want to I do it today. Uh, something a little unique. We're going to stand as we read God's word today. And then even after I say this, I'll say... This is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. That's, that's an interesting thing to do, but it's, it's just to highlight and reiterate into our minds that these are not just a regular book. This isn't, you know, like a book that you find on the shelf at, at Barnes & Noble, your favorite author. This is actually God's words to us. Every word in here is literally God's words to us. We want to reiterate into our minds that th this book is like no other book. It, it teaches us and th tells us things about God in, in a unique way that... That's not like anything else. And so we want to remember that as we go to it, because as we read it, it's in essence reading us, and it's going to reveal to us deeper things about Christ. So let's stand, and we'll look at eight, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 17 uh, together. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, um, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them... <coughs> 
and he went to see them. And, when, and because he was one uh, of, of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was, was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. That's so classic. Paul Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together and with his entire house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. But... When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews uh, made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If this was a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it to yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And you can see in verse 18a, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your word to us. We pray that as we look at this particular text, that it would certainly, um, though written 2,000 years ago and is absolutely relevant to us, that we would see and understand it as absolutely relevant to us right now. That, that your word uh, never returns void and has plenty to say to us today. So we pray for your help this morning, we pray that you would come now, speak to us, and that we would love and serve you this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to go ahead and tell you from the get-go what I think the main idea of this text is. It'll be on the screen if you want to write it down. That's perfectly fine. Here's the main idea of what we're going to see in chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. Gospel-wrecked or gospel-saturated people will see the provisions of God in their life more clearly They will evangelize more fervently and they will trust Jesus' promises more frequently or more often or more regularly. I didn't say often because it didn't end in Lee and I had to keep my pattern going. Uh, But gospel-wrecked, gospel-saturated people will see the provisions of God in their life more clearly. We all have the provisions of God in our lives, whether we realize it or not. But gospel-saturated people see it more clearly. Oh, I see that it's here. We all have it. Um, They'll evangelize more often or more fervently, and they would trust his promises more frequently. When I say gospel-wrecked or gospel-saturated people, I want to be clear about what I mean here. Um, gospel is a little buzzword all over evangelicalism today, and it can mean a lot of different things. We, we have gospel romance. We have gospel, like I've heard that before, gospel romance. What does that mean? Is that a marriage conference? Um, and yes, it was, and I didn't understand what it meant. So here's what I meant. Uh, this is what gospel-wrecked or gospel-saturated, it means that those that are believers in Christ have trusted in Jesus. They knew and understood who they were before Christ. They knew that they were on a pathway towards hell. And it absolutely, whenever they met Christ, wrecked their life. 
Whenever they realized that they did not have to receive eternal condemnation. They did not have to stay as an enemy of Christ. Or as Ephesians 2 says, a follower of the prince of the power of the air. Whenever God and his rich and gracious mercy out of... out of no necessity, decided to save them, forgive them. When we repented of our sin and we crossed over from death, eternal condemnation into life, it so moved us, it so amazed us that God in his rich mercy would do that for us when he didn't have to. He showed this insurmountable amount of love towards us that we were absolutely moved and wrecked by it. And now all we want to do is dive deeper into this the, the deep riches of the gospel. We want to saturate ourselves with every aspect of understanding of what Christ has done for us. Those kinds of people, gospel-wrecked and gospel-saturated people that see and know and want to live for Christ, those people understand the provisions of God more clearly in their life. They'll evangelize more fervently in their life, and they'll trust God's promises more frequently. This is what we'll see in the life of Paul today. This, as we read the text, it's really kind of two big pieces of what's going to happen. Verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to see Paul's initial establishment of the gospel in the, in the church of Corinth. And then verses 12 through 17 is that specific incident with the Jews in Corinth where they try to get Paul arrested, but it doesn't work. Um, that's kind of the big two pieces, but um, I have actually more than just two Two points. So <laughs> there's no surprise there. Uh, but we, since it's been about a month since we were in the book of Acts, I think it would be re- helpful for us to remember what was going on. So I have a little map, uh, and I've got th- stuff everywhere, but let me get to it. So I have a little map. You can put it up for me. Paul was in Athens. Uh, so he started, and he's all the way over here, and he's gone around, and he left Berea and Thessalonica and traveled all the way to Athens because he was about to be killed. This is the normal for Paul. He's, he's always kind of about to be killed. Um, and so he left Berea, and he came all the way to Athens. And when he left Berea, he left Silas and Timothy in Berea. He said, you just guys just stay here. And then when we're in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul in Athens. And this was a, a, a much different kind of city whenever he was in Athens. And so we saw in Acts chapter 17 where he took... Uh, a different kind of way to approaching them. He, he, these, these guys didn't know anything about Jesus. And so uh, he was in Athens for a little bit. And then after that, he went over to Corinth. So this is where we are now in this bottom left-hand part. It's kind of his own little place. And the city of Corinth is, is an interesting place. And so to go from Athens to Corinth is, is a huge jump. Where Athens, when he was there, was a city that was full of idolatry. Paul was in a little bit of a culture shock about the idolatry of the city. As a matter of fact, we re, if you remember back, he was very broken by the idolatry of the city, and he was in culture shock for the idolatry. When he's in Corinth, he's got a different kind of shock. He's in moral shock in, in Corinth because of the pervasive sexual immorality that had dominated this city's history. And so he's gone from cultural shock to moral shock in the city of Corinth, where in Athens they at least tried to be upright people, they were just idolaters. Here in Corinth, they didn't. And it was, a, it was a historically pagan, wicked, wicked city, mostly because of the sexual immorality. So um, thus far, Paul is, 
he's continuing on, even though he continually has persecution against him, he goes to another city. So here he goes to Corinth. So you can see in verse 1, and after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So uh, that's point one. That's point one. Uh, so let's, let's unpack and understand a little bit about uh, the city of Corinth and Paul's mindset as he's entering into this new city. This is a new work for him he's never been to. So Corinth was, as you saw on the map, they seem to be close to Athens, about 46 miles west of Athens. And this is a very influential city. It was a trade city, lots of people coming through it all the time. So lots of sailors and these particular sailors were always guys that would be interested in taking on the the, the places in the city and usually um, being with prostitutes. And so this, this had a, a, it was a huge trade, had lots of money in it, uh, but it was a very, and it was a very influential city, but it also had a, as I said, a wicked history of debauchery. Before it was a Roman colony, it was a Greek city. And so Rome had destroyed the classical city around 146 BC. And around 46 BC, Julius Caesar ordered that this city of Corinth be rebuilt as a Roman colony instead of Greek. But before that, um, it was a Greek city. And they had Greek games that would happen. I forgot the name of them. But every other year, they'd have a mass gathering where they'd have Greek games. And they participated in these games in the nude. Um, It was just a wicked, debaucherous, historically wicked city. As a matter of fact, um, the Greek word, they, they turn the, the word Corinth into a verb, the Corinthizai, uh, it meant to play the Corinthian, and this literally was a euphemism for fornication. To, to, be, to play the Corinthian was a euphemism in it that was around for 400 years. As a matter of fact, the noun form of Corinthians, Corinthestates, meant to be a harlot or a prostitute. I've never been to this particular city, but it's, it's much kind of like a, the Greek version of the modern-day Las Vegas. Just a, a wicked city. Just a wicked city. Um, and historically, now this wasn't present at this particular time when Paul was there, but historically, Corinth had built a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and they had a thousand female slaves that would work in the temple by day and would go be prostitutes by night. They would roam the streets and be prostitutes by night. So Corinth was known for prostitution, historically wicked prostitution, and it dominated the culture of the city, the mindsets of the, of the people, and for 400 years, this was just how people thought, and Many people, as Paul goes, when you read 1 Corinthians 6, you see uh, how, why Paul addresses, because it was such a part of the, si- of the city and a part of the culture that when people became Christians, they didn't even realize that you can't do that anymore. So when you read Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, when he's telling people you can't unite Christ with a prostitute, it's with such vehemence because they didn't know any better, and that's what they were doing in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, so in this particular place... Um, it was known for its sexual debauchery, but it was also known for its wealth, and it was known for its pride. And so Paul had all these things going on in the city of Corinth before he gets there, where they're, they're wicked, they're highly sexually immoral, they're very wealthy because it's a trade city, and very prideful people. But the good news for Corinth and the good news for us today is that the cross of Christ undermines all human pride. It destroys all bridges or, or, or walls that come up from wealth and even sexual morality in anyone's life. All these things can be destroyed and completely forgiven because of what Christ has done. And it insists that sinners have absolutely nothing to do when it comes to contributing their salvation. And God in his rich mercy will lavish forgiveness upon anybody from any background, even the Corinthians. 
Even the Corinthians, when we hear the gospel being planted in the city of Corinth, it gives every one of us great hope to know that, yes, Christ is huge, and yes, Christ forgives anyone to the utmost. So I want you to know Paul's mindset. Paul actually tells us his mindset as he's going into the city of Corinth as he wrote their letter in 1 Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he tells us as he's, as he's leaving Athens and coming to Corinthians, what's going on in his mind. Luke doesn't write it in the book of Acts, but Paul tells us what he's thinking. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is what he says. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom... Some would argue that that's what he had just done in the city of Athens. And and in his mind, he didn't see much success in the the city of Athens like he wanted. And so he decided not to do that. And he resolved in his mind when he goes into the city of Corinth to be different. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, Some commentators said that. But he says, this is why I decided in verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's, that's radical. I mean, that is an amazing way to say, I'm going into a city that doesn't know anything about Jesus, and the only thing I'm going to do is talk about Christ and crucif- him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the spirit um, and of power that your faith might not mess in not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other, in other words, pastors can understand this really well. What he's saying is, if I am a really terrible preacher, really terrible preacher, and tons of people get saved when I preach, then everyone's going to say, well, it wasn't because that guy was a great preacher. The Spirit of God's just huge and just, just saved the room. It wasn't that guy. But if I'm a really great preacher and tons of people get saved, some people say, well, he's just a good preacher too, man. And Paul is saying, I didn't want to come as a guy that's just an amazing preacher. I just wanted to do, know nothing except Christ crucified. And I didn't come with, when it says, uh, words of, of loftiness or wisdom. I just came in weakness. I came in fear. And I came in much trembling. My speech and my message weren't really plausible words of wisdom. But people got saved there. And so it shows that it has nothing to do with me and my speech. But everything to do with Christ and his power to save. That's the way I came to Corinth. That's the way I wanted to enter Corinth. So that whenever people got saved, no one would say, well, Paul's, I mean, Paul's, Paul's awesome. No one would say that. Everybody would say, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is awesome. So that's his mindset coming in as he's coming in. So that's the city of Corinth and Paul's mindset as he's entering. The gospel of Christ crucified. That's all I had in my, in my mind. That's all I wanted to talk about. And it was As he's coming in, he was wanting to summon the Corinthian church to repentance and holiness and warn them about the sexual morality among the wealth, the hope and wealth, and pride in their hearts, and let them know that these things will not let you inherit the kingdom of God. That's what's going on as he's entering. And so, as we see Paul going in, certainly has been beat up in ministry as he's walking in. He's been, people have tried to kill him all over the place. He's on a second missionary journey. And we see... The constant grace of God to Paul for provision for the work. We see that. That's point two. The constant grace of God for provision for the work. As soon as he gets there, here's the immediate provisions of God. 
Now, he's been by himself from the city of Athens. He had people with him in Berea and Thessalonica, but he left because they tried to kill him, and he left Silas and Timothy. They didn't try to kill Silas and Timothy, so he's like, stay here in Berea, keep the work going, see if you can minister to them. I'll go, I'm going to leave. He goes down to Athens. He's t- completely by himself, and then he walks over to Corinth, and all of a sudden, when he's by himself, God provides help. God provides help. And not only that, he provides help with people that do the same thing as him. Like, if you have a job and you had to do something, you can just get along with them. For, for introverts like me that don't know what to say after about three sentences, if we do the same thing, I can talk about seven more sentences with you. But if we don't do the same thing, I'm freaking out in my head. I'm like, ah. But if, if you do the same thing and some, you're ta- you meet someone and like, hey, you're a preacher? Oh, I'm a preacher. What do you think about uh, Revelation? You know, you know what? You know something else to say. But if they work on cars and then I, uh, I don't, cars. Mine messes up a lot. Like, that's what it is, right? I don't know what else to say. But here, Paul meets somebody that does the same thing as him. Just a small little grace of God. He meets Aquila and Priscilla, and what do they do? They make tents. Hey, I make tents. Well, let's make tents together. And as we're making tents together, where are you from? I'm from Italy. Ah, I'm, from, I'm Paul. I'm from Tarsus. And here, here's, here's the amazing, it's a small grace, but still yet an enormous grace of God. And even after that, after Priscilla and Aquila join him, we'll see that, Silas and Timothy are going to join as well in verse 5. They're going to come down. So it says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That's not, that's not a coincidence. This is the sovereignty of God working through, working through rulers to command them to leave. And Priscilla and Aquila, in their minds, are commanded to leave. The sovereign hand of God bringing Priscilla and Aquila to meet Paul. So that we can see later on, whenever we see this, that Paul would say of Priscilla and Aquila, they are fellow workers in Christ with me. Or we would see, as he said in Romans chapter 16, they risk their life for me. All sovereign hand of God bringing them along. And then it says um, that he reasoned with them in the synagogue. Now, we've said this over and over. Paul's standard way when he goes into a city is to first go to the Jews, go to the synagogue, and reason with them always. He always wants to reason with them, and then after that, he moves to the Gentiles. It's, it's the, the, those that are Jews are the, are the low-hanging fruit of, of evangelism because they already know the whole Old Testament. They should, and they already are looking for the Messiah. And so, hey, you know that Bible you've been reading for hundreds and hundreds of years? That guy that's from Genesis 3 all the way through, that Messiah, he's Jesus. You know, so he would, that's a standard practice. He would go to the synagogue and reason every Sabbath and try to persuade them. And then he would also want to reach to the Gentiles. And it even says in verse 5, And Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. And so he has them joining him. And even more, a constant grace that, that comes to them is... Uh, we're pretty sure as we're reading this that when they arrived, Silas and Timothy arrived, arrived with a gift. They arrived with a monetary gift so that Paul didn't have to work the trade throughout the week and just be able to preach on the weekends. Now he could be totally immersed in pastoral ministry because they brought him a gift and that, with that he can buy food and he can 100% focus on ministry. And so this is an this is an illustration for us of the constant grace of God for provision. Now remember my main idea. Gospel-saturated people will see the provisions of God in their life more clearly. And so when all this has happened, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that Paul sees people coming, monetary gifts coming to him, and sees provisions of God happening in my life. This is the provisions of God. Do we see the provisions of God in our own life? Are we gospel-saturated people that when God supplies to us, 
Are we constantly on the complaining side? I wish I had more. Are we on the thankful side? I don't need more. I have Jesus. And wow, what a grace. What a grace that he would provide these things to me. What a grace that he would provide these small things to me. God has provided, be sure, O saint, that God has provided all that you need richly in Christ. But not only that, God has provided all that you need for your work. Whatever you need for your work in ministry, whether it's a pastor of a church, a member of a church, a community group leader, whatever it is you do, we all have a ministry. We're all in large scale, small scale, and God's absolutely fine with what he's called you to. You need to be fine with it too and rejoice God has provided everything you need for the ministry that you have in your life to reach people. Just like here. And we need to see that and give thanks to God for that. And see the provision in our life more clearly. More clearly. Because that's what's happened here. Christ's death on the cross and the gospel has, is, a, is an absolute demonstration to us that God provides all that we need richly in Christ. And he provides all that we need in ministry. I, I've even seen this even just as recently as reminded of this of just recently as yesterday whenever we were at PJ and Stephanie's wedding and I remember standing there with them and saying you know it's interesting to see the rich provisions of God and how he has clearly graced you and loved you over the last few years to see that you got saved they got saved the same day the same sermon I'm preaching, and they both got saved at the same time, didn't even realize it. And I've talked with PJ, and Steph comes around like, I got saved too, just, just now. And then how from that, that we were, they were baptized, they've grown in the context of community here at Remedy in a community group, and then all leading up to a Christ-honoring wedding yesterday, and now a Christ-honoring marriage. I mean, it's just, they were lost three years ago, and now having a Christ-honoring marriage just yesterday. It's just the, the obvious hand of God in their lives. Um, richly providing all that they need. And he's doing this for you. Whether you see it or not, he's always doing it for you. So, gospel-wrecked people notice these things. Gospel-saturated people notice these things. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Paul's gospel preoccupation or Paul's gospel saturation. So we can see that in verse 3. Notice this. When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. Occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that he was the Christ. Now, I want, to be, I want us to be sure here. Um, this isn't a, a Bible, just a, this isn't just a Bible preoccupation. It, it, he's not a worshiper of the Bible. He loves the word. For him, at that particular time, it was the Old Testament. But Paul isn't preoccupied with just the logos as in the, the Bible. It's the it's the message of the Logos, the Bible, that he's preoccupied with. That's why he said, he, he's already told us in 1 Corinthians 2, my mindset when I come in, came into your city is all I wanted to talk about was Christ crucified. Christ crucified. And he even tells us at, in 1 Corinthians 15, so we know what the message was when he told them, because he tells us, we've gone over this tons of times, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. So, When he came there, this preoccupation with the word is a preoccupation with the gospel. It's the good news of what Christ has done. And he uses the word to show them Jesus. So it isn't just a, let's worship the Bible. It's it's a love of the Bible because the Bible points them to the good news of what Christ has done. So we need to see Paul's preoccupation with the, the gospel. It was because 
as we've, maybe you've heard these particular verses before, Paul had been a, a wicked man, like all of us, a wicked man before he came to know Christ. And so Paul was preoccupied with the gospel because he was a gospel-wrecked man. This is how he talks about himself. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, before he became a Christian, I thank Jesus who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, before I became a Christian, formerly I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor and an insolent opponent. Because what Christ did is I received mercy Undeserved, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord then Christ overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy in the deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save the sinners of whom I am the foremost or the chief. This is how Paul viewed himself. This is the way that we should view ourselves. The truth is that you, and, and I know this, you don't know. Anybody else has sinned better than you know your own. You know, and I know, just how wicked we are. So we can say this along with Paul. I'm, I don't know about you, but I can tell you my own, my own mind. I, I have to be the chief of all sinners. And this is what I mean about when I say Paul's gospel preoccupation. He knew who he was before Christ. A persecutor, insolent. And then he also knew the radical salvation that Christ brought him. As it says in Acts chapter 9, when he's walking down the road, Christ's light shines on him. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuted. Rise and enter the city. And then as he goes into the city, look for a street called Straight. And there you'll, you'll find that he's praying. And then Paul, Jesus says in, in verse 15, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine meant to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He remembers not only who he was and knew that he was the chief of all sinners, but he also knew who he was now and how Christ saved him. And the way he lives his life as a believer in Christ, I think maybe there's lots of places you could go, but maybe it's best summed up in, in Galatians six fourteen. So he was, he was a sinner And he knew that he was the chief of all sinners. He recalled his salvation from Acts 9. And then thirdly, he loves his Savior. And he wants to worship his Savior with all of his heart and mind, soul, and strength. In Galatians 6.14, he says says it this way. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If I'm going to say anything, boasting about anything at all, ever, It's not going to be about me. It's not going to be about the Gamecocks. It's not going to be about the Panthers. It's not going to be about anybody I like. It's not going to be about my children, whom I love. The only thing I ever want to boast about, the only thing I want to boast about is Christ crucified for me to save me from my wicked, sinful state because he was willing to find me on the road to Damascus in my sinful state and save me. Paul had this gospel preoccupation because he was a gospel-wrecked man. And it's the gospel that motivated him to mission. Not guilt, Not feeling bad that we were bad people. Guilt is never, ever meant to be the means to do mission. Ever. You are never, ever commanded by God to do evangelism, and you need to feel bad about it, so get after it. It's always gospel. We should be motivated to want to do mission because of we've been saved. As Tim Keller says, in in, in a similar way like this, he says, Christians don't work for God for acceptance. We work from acceptance. We don't work to be 
finally liked and loved by God. We worked because we are finally already now completely 100% loved by God, accepted by God. And we work from acceptance, not for. That, that's, that's a radical change of the way anybody, any other religion would ever talk. And gospel, the gospel had come to Paul and it had wrecked him and it had changed him forever. Maybe you can ex- understand my, my experience. I was saved at eight. Very young. I was saved at eight. But I was wrecked by the gospel at 20. I was wrecked by the gospel at 20. It's, it's whenever I was finally understood the depth of my sin and the depth, even deeper depth of Christ's love to save me that changed my life. I was saved at eight, not discipled, but I was wrecked at 20. And then I was forever changed. What about you? Can you remember back? Maybe can you remember back just a couple days, or a couple years, or however long it's been? This is what's happening to Paul. And if you, do, if you don't know Christ, if you've never, ever been saved, today's the day. Now's the time. Literally, whatever time. 10, 15 a.m. today, right now, is the moment for you to trust in Christ and be saved forever. Be forgiven of all your sin. Cross over from death to life. Now, what we're going to see here in this particular text in Acts 18 is a, is a huge shift for Paul. Yes, he has been ministering to Gentiles, but this is a huge shift for Paul. Whenever he, uh, he's preoccupied with the word, you can see what happens here. He's preoccupied with the word, testifying to him that Jesus is the Christ. When they opposed him, they reviled him. This is no small thing. This is not something we've seen thus far in the book of Acts when he talks to the Jews. He's usually frustrated. They try to kill him. But this is what he does in verse 6. This is, this is quite different. They opposed him, revived him. He shook the garments out and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And then look at this. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is huge. Paul is shifting from the synagogue to the home. Next door which is just so Paul, he's, I'm leaving the synagogue. I'm going right here next door to this people over here. But that's, that's what he does. But this is no doubt a, a huge shift in missiological focus. So four, four thing that we'll see here, Paul's bold move in his missiological shift. This is a huge, Paul's bold move, missio, that doesn't make sense. Paul's move in his missiolog, bold move in his missiological shift. It's, Derek Thomas says it this way, we should not make light of Paul's departure from the synagogue in Corinth. It was a defining moment in the course of missions, of his missions, with far-reaching implications. So this is a huge change for Paul. A huge change. Um, And I want you to notice, whenever we, I mean, that's a pretty big decision to make. I want you to notice the quick vindication that he has. Because you think, wow, Paul, are you supposed to be doing that? I don't know. There's quick, very quick vindication that he has. Notice verse 8. God grants immediate salvation. You can see it in verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. That's pretty amazing, right? Forget you guys in the synagogue. I'm going next door. The guy that rules the synagogue, Crispus, he gets saved. Like, next day, right? So the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, believes. Very good vindication. Not only that, God grants salvation to Crispus in his household. And, and continuing on, God grants salvation to many Corinthians 
In verse 8, hearing Paul, and then you even see quick vindication where Jesus confirms this decision and gives Jesus himself, red letters, I don't know if you noticed, verse 9 and 10, red letters, Jesus confirms this decision, gives encouragement. He says, don't be afraid, go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you. I have many, I love this, I have, there are many people in this city who are my people. So, this is quite amazing. Um, he tells them not to be afraid, but to go on speaking. Now, the reason why he tells them this is because every city he's gone to, they've tried to kill him. And Paul's like, you know, get out of here, don't want to get killed. And Jesus tells him, it's going to come again, but you don't need to leave. I'm going to protect you. That's the incident in verse 12 through 17. They try to bring something and nothing happens. And Jesus' promise is going to come true. We're coming back to that. But here, Jesus tells them specifically, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. He says, in essence, be bold. You can be bold and I'm with you. He even tells you and I right now, be bold. Be bold. You say, I'm weak. I hear you. I feel weak a lot too. He's telling us, be bold. Kent Hughes says it this this way. Weakness is the secret strength of God's most effective servants and the indispensable element of potent preaching. In other words, his power is made perfect in our weakness, as he says in 2 Corinthians. It's fine for you to be weak, because when you're weak, that's when Jesus is going to take up for all that weakness and be strong. And his strength is way better than ours, right? Way better than ours. So it's fine to be weak. Just as Paul said, I came to Corinthians not with lofty speech, but as a weak guy. And what did God do? He saved. And he can do that in your life. He can do that in your life. This is is where it gets pretty awesome. He says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. I am with you. You are never alone. Jesus promises that to us in Matthew 28. As a matter of fact, the gospel itself is a promise to you that you will never, ever have to be alone anymore in your sin. But what God has done is forgiven you of sin and ushered you into the, the kingdom or ushered you into the presence of God so that you're never alone. You're always with the king. You're always with him. The gospel itself is, is being put on display here. No one will attack you to harm you. I know that's been happening all the time. But in the city of Corinth, Jesus is sovereignly going to say, that's not going to happen. And this is what I love. For I have many in this city who are my people. The Greek word for people is laos. The Greek word for people is laos. And as John Stott points out, this is the Greek word uh, the, the Old Testament would use for Israel. And it's now being extended into the Gentiles. He says... I have many people in this city who are my people. They're not yet. They're wicked, but they're my people. This is the case for Rock Hill. Jesus is saying that to us right now. There are many people in this city that are my people. Very John Tennish, very John Tennish, where Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says this. And I have other sheep that are not of this sold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There's people that, in the, that aren't here right now, and they're my sheep. We need to go get them. And same thing he's saying here to Paul. There's people in this city that are my people, and they're just not part of our, our team yet. They're not part of our family yet, and they need to be. So you be faithful. You don't stop speaking. You keep preaching. And those wicked Wicked, debaucherous Corinthians are going to meet Jesus and they're going to be saved. 
It's the same thing with Rock Hill. You keep preaching and you keep talking. You keep being weak and yet being bold because there's people here in this city that are his people. And they will be saved. And they will be saved by us being faithful. It's the sovereign plan of God to do that. I love how J.I. Packer talks about the sovereignty of God in evangelism. He says, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God, this is from his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of Sovereignty of God. He says, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God and grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Apart from the sovereignty of God, there's not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile, useless enterprise the world has ever seen. And there would be no more, it would be no more a complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. But it's not because we serve a sovereign God. We serve a sovereign God. And so as we're looking at this, the Lord is telling Paul that there are many people here that are my people. There are brothers and sisters all around us. Calvin, looking at this text, says, even though these people in Corinth might be reasonably counted as outsiders right now, the Lord calls them his own because they were written in the book of life and they were about to be admitted into his family. And we know that many sheep wander outside of the flock for a time, just as there's wolves among the sheep, but Christ calls and he saves and he brings them in. And that's the case for us right now. Paul had a deep love for these people to meet him. And do we have this as well? Do we have a deep desire to see people come to know Christ? Do we have a deep, passionate, driving thing in us? Not out of guilt, but out of gospel motivation because of what he's done for us, for people to come to know Christ. Spurgeon describes this deep love for people to meet Jesus this way. The master passion of every Christian is to be useful. There should be a burning zeal within us for the glory of God. When the man who desires to be useful has laid his plans and set about his work, he begins to look for the results. But perhaps it will be weeks or even years before results will come. The worker is not to be blamed that there are no fruits as yet, but he is to be blamed if he's content to be without fruits. A preacher may preach without conversions, and who shall blame him? Because God saves. But if he be happy, who shall excuse him? It is ours to break our own hearts if we cannot, by God's grace, break other men's hearts. In other words, if people aren't being saved, then we continually cultivate a deep passion for people so that we will continue to preach even though people aren't getting saved. As he says, it's ours to break our own hearts if we cannot, by God's grace, break other men's hearts. If others will not weep for their sins, we should make it our constant habit to weep for them. That's what we're talking about, a deep, deep desire for people that don't know Christ to come to know Christ. That's why I said the main idea is gospel wreck, gospel saturated people will evangelize more fervently because of what Christ has done. They'll see the provisions of God more often or they'll see them more clearly, but they'll also evangelize more fervently. They'll evangelize more fervently. And here's the last one. Um, it isn't the last one, I'm sorry. I, I, I kidded you. So if you keep going... Uh, you see this in verse 11. Here's Paul's method for disciple making. This is what he wants to do, but he couldn't do most times because people tried to kill him. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching them the word of God. Paul's method for disciple making. Don't ever miss this. This is your method for disciple making. We live in a microwave culture and disciple making is a crock pot ritual. It is not a mic. You can't microwave it, right? You can't. Boom, you're a disciple. 
right? 10 minutes, 50, 30 seconds, hit the 30 second button. It's a crock pot deal. It takes a long time. And Paul works for 18 months. It's long, sustained teaching through the word. That's what he does. And he stayed a year and 16 months teaching the word of God among them. That's the method for disciple making. It's not Paul's, it's everybody. It's Jesus's. The way that we see it is that we should stay and let the word be the word. John Stott, the word of God is the divinely appointed means by which people come and put their trust in Christ and so identify themselves as Christ's. The word. If you are faithfully reading and teaching through the word with someone, that is God's plan. It, and don't treat it as a microwave. Treat it as a crock pot. It's, you are going to be there long. It's going to take a long time. Paul was 18 months here doing this. And if you read the book of Corinthians, they are an absolute mess. They have some terrible things going on. One dude's hooking up with his dad's wife. They're all, they don't know what, what to do about gifts. They're all crazy. I mean, there's all kinds of problems that are going on. And the first, you got people sleeping with prostitutes still. And this is 18 months of, of Paul faithfully working with them. Disciple making is a long endeavor. And so we need to stay faithful. We need to stay faithful. And this is what happens. This is what happens. You have this, you have this Paul is going to experience opposition and Paul, God uses it to turn to good. You can see this. This is the last one, Roman numeral six. So Gallio is proconsul of Achaia at this time. The Jews can't stand Paul. They make united attack on Paul. And they, they've been doing this in every city, usually resulting in either Paul getting beat almost to death or trying to you know, be lowered out of a back window and running out of town. Not here because he remembers the vision. What did the vision say? You ain't got to go nowhere. You're fine. Jesus says, don't say. You stay faithful. No one's going to hurt you. And here's where God's promises are going to come true, and we can trust him. That's why I said the main idea, gospel-wrecked, gospel-saturated people, trust Jesus' promises more fervently. Jesus told Paul, stay. Usually he had to split. He had to get out of there. Jesus says, stay. He's going to stay. And here's, here's the incident. Here it comes. They're trying to build an attack again. They're saying, this man's persuading people to worship God contrary to law. And when Paul is about to open his mouth to try to start saying something, the ruler... Of the city says, ah, I don't want to hear all this. Forget all this. This is something that, that, that's a Jewish kind of deal. He's a Jew, you're a Jew. I, I, I don't want to get into that. You can see what he says. Um, oh, Jews, if this was a matter of wrongdoing, vicious crime, I would listen. But since it's a matter of questions about your words and your names and your stuff, I don't want to be, I don't want to be involved in this. I refuse to judge these things. What happens? Paul's fine. Nobody's going to kill him. As a matter of fact... Poor Sosthenes, he gets the trash beat out of him. There's a bunch of Gentiles there that are just kind of anti-Semitic, and they were ready to beat up Paul, and the governor's like, ah, forget Paul. They're like, all right, Sosthenes, we're going to beat the trash out of you then. You can see it in verse 18. And they drove him from the tribunal, and they all just see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. This is amazing, right? Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Paul gets, he gets saved by Paul. Jesus saves, you know what I mean. So Sosthenes now becomes the ruler of the synagogue, and poor Sosthenes takes the, takes the beating. Right? But here's what's the cool thing. We don't know this for sure. We don't know this. But I think this is the same Sosthenes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to you. And you know who's with me? And our brother Sosthenes. That persecution that Sosthenes, I think was the impetus, was the catalyst for him to look over at Paul and say, what just happened? And Paul looked at him and said, I don't know anything else besides Christ crucified. Let me tell you about Jesus. Second 
synagogue ruler is now saved by Paul. You got to bring in the bullpen. Like we've already, he's already converted Crispus or yeah, Crispus and, and Sosthenes. We got to bring in the next guy. And so what we see here is Paul is experiencing opposition. And as a disciple, what is Jesus doing? Turning it to good. What you meant for evil, God turns for good. What you meant for evil, God turns for good. Genesis 50, 20, Romans 8, 28. What you meant for evil, God turns for good. In other words, Jesus made a promise. Jesus kept his promise. You don't have to worry. And gospel, gospel saturated paid people, they trust Jesus. They trust Jesus more frequently. He's made infinite numbers of promises to us in his word. And if we are wrecked by the gospel, we trust him. If we're not, we try to put it all together ourselves. No, 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 I, I got this, God. I can, I can handle my life. You don't need to because we can trust him. We can trust him. We should trust his promises to us. It's almost like Jesus kind of saw this incident coming, right? That's a joke. Of course he did. He's sovereign. Um, what do you mean, Fudd? You're a heretic. Um, the main idea is this. Are we the kind of gospel-wrecked, gospel-saturated people that will see the provisions of God in our life more clearly? Identify these things to our children. Identify these things to our families. Identify these things and point them out so that they can rejoice in the Lord. Are we seeing these things? Are we, are we so moved about what God has done that we see the, all the provisions of God in our own life? Are we so moved because what God has done that we will evangelize more fervently? There's just something in us. I have to. There's more people in this city. And I want them to know. Are we the kind of people that are gospel-wrecked and gospel-saturated that we're going to continue trusting in God's promises? Whatever's happening, are we going we to trust him? I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust him. And it's fine with me if he's calling the shots. We're going to go into a time of worship and Lord's Supper. And I just encourage you, as we go into these times, you're going to have time to sit, think, and pray. You don't have to, you don't have to like close your Bible, click your pen, and mentally check out. You've got space here for you to think, for you to pray, for you to journal, for you to, to, to do whatever you need to do. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to worship. And I just encourage you in these moments to think, am I seeing the provisions more clearly and thanking God? Am I evangelizing more fervently? Are there people in the city that I need to be broken for? Am I trusting his promises more frequently? And all that falls under the big umbrella is, am I... Am I understanding the good news of the gospel and what he's done? And am I just moved by it? If you don't know Jesus, this is the moment for you to trust in Jesus and be forever changed, be forever forgiven. Have all your sins washed away to repent of your sin and only know holiness now. You can come and talk to me. I'd love to, I'd love to tell you how that can happen right now. We're going to go into a time of Lord's Supper. And I just ask that you would, uh, if you're a believer, that you would... Prepare your heart and that you would come forward. If you're not a believer, that you would, just, you would just watch. You would just observe how we think on what Christ has done for us in a tangible way. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. You're, you're so kind to us in ways that we, that we don't know, in ways that we don't see, in ways that we don't understand. But you're good. And so we pray now that as we think on what you've done, as we think on the gospel, that we would be thankful and that we would leave here reflecting on the good news, reflecting on those that don't know you that we can share. 
And Lord, for those that uh, have just had a rough week, they've experienced suffering, they've experienced persecution, or they've just been difficult for them to see the provisions. God, that they would trust you. They would know your nature, know your character, know your goodness, and they would trust you. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper and remember tangibly what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.